Welcome to the Expat Empire Podcast, the podcast where you can hear from expats around the world and learn how you can join them. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for the 14th episode of the Expat Empire Podcast. Before we jump into today's interview, I want to give you a quick update on Expat Empire. In addition to this podcast, on our website, expatempire.com, we have many blog posts and books about how to relocate to different countries around the world. In addition to all of the content, we also provide consulting services for people interested in moving abroad but not quite sure where to start or what to do next. We can help you to figure out where you should move based on your specific needs and interests, how you can find work and which visas you can apply for in that country, and much more. Please visit expatempire.com to schedule your free 30-minute call so that we can hear about your dreams for moving abroad and see how we can help make them a reality. Today we will be hearing from Jamie Stewart. With her half-English, half-American background and passions for traveling and helping others, Jamie has already had the opportunity to accumulate many international experiences at a young age. Following boarding schools and study abroad experiences during her studies, Jamie headed to Uganda and quickly felt at home in the community there. Partnering with her friend and the local community, she started the Hope Center in Gulu, Uganda, a grassroots community-led organization helping women and children in the area to find a safe space to meet, practice art, and find new employment opportunities. After fundraising and setting up the Hope Center, Jamie passed leadership onto the local team and moved to Berlin, Germany, where she is pursuing her interests in music technology and DJing. Without further ado, let's start the conversation. Hey, Jamie, thanks so much for joining us today on the Expat Empire podcast. Thank you. It's really good to be here. So uh, if you could go ahead and start off by telling us a little bit about where you're originally from and where around the world you've lived so far, that'd be great. Yeah, totally. So I'm half English, half American, and I was born in Dallas, Texas, and grew up in Texas, Vermont, California, and North Carolina. And then I went to university in North Carolina. And the whole time I was always kind of going back and forth um, to England a lot. I went to school there for a bit in high school, and most of our family is out there. So, And I'm also lucky enough to have both the English and American passport, which has been pretty helpful in my um, in my tendency to move around a lot. So then in university, I was at, studying at North Carolina, but I studied abroad in Buenos Aires in Argentina. That was kind of the first time that I really lived abroad outside of England and the U.S. And then I went on to have my few stints living in Uganda each time for between one to three months and then Switzerland for six months and now Berlin. Wow. So that's quite a quite a world crossing journey that you've had over the last 10 full years. Yeah, definitely. What was it like growing up uh, having the opportunity to spend time across two countries? Was that something that helped inspire you to try to continue to live abroad, as you mentioned, or, uh, you know, did you, did you find any difficulties in getting integrated into both societies? How did you feel about that? It definitely inspired me to travel more abroad because I would always be like, oh, why are we going to England again? Like, I want to go somewhere different, even though, you know, it was the sea family. Like, of course we were going to go there. And my parents were also always very supportive of traveling and me living abroad. Um, they really pushed me to go to school in England and they, you know, really pushed me to study abroad and 
they actually used to live in Uganda together for three years. So I think that was kind of a subconscious behind the scenes reason that when that I was so excited to go to Uganda when I found internships and reasons to go work out there um, because I'd heard so much about it from them. And then regarding the different cultures and fitting in, that was definitely more of an issue when I was, or not an issue, but like a, I don't know, a challenge or something that I even was aware of when I was younger. Um, once I was in university, it was kind of like everyone, all my peers in any country, like it's been pretty easy to relate to people and have the same interests or at least always coming down to something with music that I can talk to people about. But uh, in high school, when I first went from the U.S. to go to boarding school in England, that was like a bit of a challenge at first. I was that weird American girl. I was the only American and I was just like kind of a loser. I mean, I wasn't. <laughs> I was like unique and quirky, but everyone there was like really cool. You know, like the girls there were like cool for their age and I was like a bit nerdy for my age. So after like six months, I caught up and I ended up making like amazing friends who I still keep in touch with. But that was also ninth grade. I mean, high school is kind of like that for no matter where you are. Absolutely. And how long did you spend at the boarding school in total? Uh, just a year in the end, because I knew I wanted to go to university in the U.S. And in order to do that, it would it makes just a million times more sense to finish up high school in the U.S. because of things like SATs and just the way the credit system works. And how did you decide on the university that you went to? Obviously, you were picking from U.S. universities, as you mentioned, but you know, there's so many different places that you could go. How did you uh, pick the university that you did? So that was actually um, like a sore subject kind of at the time. It was just because of money. Um, we lived in North Carolina and um, like going to a college out of state was financially pretty much out of the question unless I got a massive scholarship. So I had originally had my heart set on like NYU or schools in California, but then when it came time to apply, I kind of realized that the only realistic, unless I got a massive scholarship, the only realistic options would be in state. And, um, unfortunately Chapel Hill is the town I went to high school in. So I was kind of averse to going to the university of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In the end, I went, I did end up going there cause it was like the best school in the state that I could get into and had good value. And honestly, in the end, it was a perfect college experience. I never felt too close to home. Um, and I always, it, I think it drove me even more to take time to travel in the summers because I wasn't, pushed super far out of my comfort zone with school itself. So I made like a lot more conscious decisions to do other things that would push me outside my comfort zone. Right. And uh, I think that makes perfect sense. And especially if you were given opportunities, like you mentioned, to study abroad as well. How did you decide to take advantage of that particular program and, and pick the destination that you did? Um, yeah, so I really wanted to, I wanted to study abroad somewhere that was Spanish speaking because I was learning Spanish and I just thought it made the most sense. And I didn't want to go to Barcelona because everybody went to Barcelona who was studying Spanish. And I had been to Barcelona before and I had like, I'd, I'd seen it. I kind of knew the deal was and it's a super fun city, but I wanted to go again somewhere more outside my comfort zone. I was like a little confused because there weren't really, I, I was having trouble finding programs that were outside of Spain. And then, yeah, I found a journalism program in Buenos Aires, which is perfect because I was studying journalism and 
it was actually funny. My best friend at the time, uh, she is from, her family is from Argentina, kind of just like my family is from England. And so she ended up going to study abroad in London and I ended up going to study abroad in Buenos Aires. So it was kind of like a, like a best friend culture exchange thing. I don't know. That was kind of like the icing on the cake, I guess. So what were those first days in Buenos Aires like for you as a study abroad student? The first days were honestly kind of weird because we were assigned host families. And my first host mom was like kind of evil and scary. <laughs> so I was like with her for the first couple of days. And I was like, I don't know if this is still like, if she's still giving me bad vibes at the end of the week, I'll ask for a new host mom. Um, so after the first week, I ended up switching to a new host mom who was way nicer. And Buenos Aires was a little tough at the beginning because um, we arrived in winter. So it was a little gray. But the study abroad program I did made it really easy to meet other Americans. Is that the group that you felt sort of most comfortable with, with a similar background and probably a similar view toward travel? Or did you get involved with the local students as well? Um, at the beginning, it was definitely easier because of the study abroad program to meet other Americans. Like we would have a Spanish class all together. Um, the orientation, it was like three days where we were together most of the day. Um, and that, that was definitely like my core group of friends while I was out there. Also because it's going to be the study abroad students who are most excited to do things like take weekend trips um, or Stuff like, you know, stuff like that where a local might not be so excited to go see some part of the country that they've maybe seen before or for them is always there. But we did always try and make conscious efforts to meet local people and hang out with local people. Um, I took classes at local universities, so I met some local students that way through friends of friends and stuff like that. Yeah, that's awesome. I had the same experience studying abroad in Singapore where I arrived in the second semester and there were students there from all over the EU that had been there for a semester already and were staying for a year. And it was just such an easy thing to, you know, tap tap them for all their information, uh, join them on their trips. And uh, yeah, we, we definitely got along well. And I saw, of course, some mindset differences between someone who's there for a semester versus living there, right? Yeah, definitely. And um, one thing that was awesome that uh, really kind of made my experience in Buenos Aires was after I didn't end up living with my second host mom the whole time. Uh, after I'd been with her for maybe a month, I found this amazing house like in the center of downtown, kind of near San Telmo, so in kind of a gritty neighborhood. But it was a super old townhouse. And there was 14 people living there, mostly students, um, mostly French, Colombian. There's one Canadian and one other American, and it was super cheap. And this, when I say the house was amazing, like it wasn't, you know, pristine and perfect, but it had an insane history. It used to originally be an artist squat, and then it was converted into a hostel and then the owner was sick of people coming and going all the time so he kind of started looking for more long-term people to take the room so it essentially became this kind of student house but mostly but the walls were covered in beautiful murals and crazy statues and all of this stuff because of the past as the artist squat and living there was really awesome. Uh, the people that I lived with there were really like-minded in terms of, I don't know, music and culture and wanting to do stuff, but not necessarily wanting to go spend money at like 
the commercial mainstream clubs that the American study abroad students tended to be drawn to. And you've mentioned music. Is is that a part of your background as well? Or, or what uh, What do you play? Or, or are you in a band? Or how does that work for you? Oh, I wish I could play something or be in a band. <laughs> I, I've always been really interested in music, but it kind of took me a while to figure out like where my fit is. Um, mm-hmm. I tried playing guitar. I kind of, I don't know, lost interest a bit and never really had like formal lessons. Right now I DJ and right now I'm getting into production, but that's like a very, like production for me is just kind of like a personal hobby. I think DJing was where I really found a fit for what I wanted to do with music. You know, it's kind of like just being a fan and digging for music and finding artists you like and making playlists and thinking that you have good taste and seeing how people interact with the music. Yeah, a way for letting the music speak for itself, kind of getting to be in the background a bit more um, as far as any type of like performance related events might go. So as you wrapped up your time in Buenos Aires and maybe in university as well, how did that lead to the opportunities and and the route that you took in terms of going into Uganda and working uh, with different NGOs there? Yeah, so I'd actually, I had been to Uganda the summer before I went to Buenos Aires. Um, I had found an internship there working with an organization that helps women grow their small businesses. And so I was really excited to go out there and I convinced one of my friends at the time named Ella to apply with me. Um, So we both got the internship um, and Ella and I went out there and we were a little bit disappointed by the organization we were working for, but we were really inspired by the people in the community that we were working with and especially by one woman we were working with very closely named Kevin. And Ella and Kevin and I were kind of driving around and we were always impressed by how quickly Gulu was developing. It's like, it's the second most populated city in, or area in Uganda, but it was like completely burned to the ground in the civil war, which only ended a little over 10 years ago. And we were just so impressed by how quickly buildings were popping up and things were being developed and also by people's mindsets. Like everyone had such a comeback stronger attitude and there were so many young people and just such an amazing, open, friendly culture. And yeah, so Ellen, Kevin and I were talking and we were kind of like, why is there nothing for kids outside of school? Why is there nothing with computers? Why is there nothing with arts and music? And we decided that that was kind of the niche that we wanted to fill was to create a safe space where these things could happen. And it was kind of like Ella and I talking about it. And as soon as Kevin was on board, we knew that it was something that we had to make happen. It could make happen because Kevin is, she's like a superwoman in that community. You know, Uganda can be a really hard place to accomplish things and she knows exactly um, what to do who to talk to how to do it to get things done quickly which is awesome yeah that sounds like a huge asset and benefit to your uh, efforts over there how how did you actually get started what was what were the first steps that it took to get things moving and off the ground yeah so the first steps I think we probably decided um, that we wanted to start the Hope Center maybe like a week before we left Uganda the first time. So the first steps were really quite rushed. We bought a piece of land because it was really cheap. 
and we got our official um like registration as a CBO and we got our um got a official nonprofit bank account with uh, Barclays Uganda branch and um once those three things were done that's when Ella and I left and we spent the next 6 months fundraising to um move forward with construction of the center and in the meantime we did uh free weekly english classes for local youth just renting out a local school building because obviously fundraising to build the center was quite a big cost and we kind of wanted to raise some credibility amongst donors and in the community before you know taking that big leap right where did you find most of your investors were they in the the US or the UK all over um mostly in the US but we've definitely had a lot of support from the UK Um we've done a lot of crowdfunding and we've been pretty successful with that. There's a platform called Global Giving which kind of gamifies crowdfunding. If you do these like little lessons and submit a lot of business plans and show all your monitoring and evaluation, they improve your search ranking. So when we were fundraising, I did a lot of those um used a lot of those tools and activities and you know got us like the superstar ranking and I think that really helped. Um but we did also have a lot of support from the local community um not in the terms of financial support necessarily but in terms of people donating their time to do things like help us clear the brush from the land or giving us good deals on you know construction materials uh the community like are very excited about the hope center and people really come together and give what they can and work together to kind of make it a reality because they know that their children are the ones that are going to be benefiting from it. It's always amazing when you can get that buy-in from the local people as well and truly work together and as you mentioned maybe it's not always necessarily financial backing but you know a lot of hard work and sweat equity that people can put in to to make it happen so it's awesome that you were able to see that reception from the community you were trying to help Yeah, it was really awesome and it was kind of there from the beginning like when we had the ideas for this project we talked to members of the community to make sure it was something that they really needed and really wanted. Um so yeah, we've always tried to be very grassroots in that way and of course having Kevin makes that pretty easy because she's already very well connected. Absolutely. And what did it take for you to actually get the business set up or was that mostly handled by Kevin on the ground? Like how much involvement did you have and what were those steps if if you can talk about it at a high level? Yeah, so me and Ella being the US team, we handled the fundraising and we handled things like um creating business plans to show donors and also to share with Kevin and applying for grants, doing the website, social media, stuff like that. Kevin really does like the on the ground work, so making sure that staff get their salaries on time, making sure things are running smoothly, dealing with any issues or I don't know, things that might come up on the ground. And so when you first uh actually visited Uganda I guess on uh, the internship that you first mentioned what was what was it like for you in those first days I mean what surprised you most uh were there any particular challenges that stuck out to you or did everything just flow extremely smoothly and you felt integrated almost straight away I think things flowed pretty smoothly um I had been to Kenya a few times before I think like four or five times mostly with my parents to visit friends but then also uh the summer before I went to Uganda I had been to Kenya on a volunteering trip with another education um organization. Yeah, I had a pretty good idea um of how it was going to be and I think it went really smoothly. 
So as you transitioned from the internship to your own NGO, how did you manage the visa situation? Considering that you'd created that NGO, were you able to use that to sponsor your visa or did you need some help on the ground? How did that work? We always just go for a tourist visa because it's way more simple than getting a working visa. Um, and the limit on the tourist visa is 90 days. So we've always um, chosen that and stuck to the 90 days limit. And, you know, if we do have um, people that have come out to volunteer with us that have wanted to stay longer than 90 days, but then we recommend that they do like a weekend trip to Kigali or, um, you know, another nearby country so they can get out and get back in again. So how important was it for you to be able to speak the local language while living in Uganda? Were you able to pick it up and was that helpful for you or were you able to be pretty much as effective just using English? It depends who you're talking to. Like people, like young people um, pretty much have a good level of English. You can at least have conversations, like say what you want, stuff like that. But uh, older people usually might not speak any English at all. So for things like working with women in rural villages. Um, we always had Kevin or someone to translate, but you know that's when knowing the local language takes you super far because they're always so excited and so impressed when someone that they thought was a tourist can speak the local language. So there's Luganda, which is spoken around the capital, but in the north it's Luo or Acholi. And I think it's like such a fun language to learn. I think it's pretty simple. I like, I don't understand the grammar and stuff fully, but from what I can tell, it's pretty simple. And a lot of the words are just really fun to say. Um, like, home is gang. So it's kind of like, ah, oh, gang, gang, gang. Like, we're going home. <laughs> he is water, which is just kind of funny, like, coming from <laughs> English when it's like, you're not drinking tea. I don't know. Right. <laughs> and I really like learning the local language and it's kind of hard though. Like there's no way you can learn it online or anything. Um, but when you're in Gulu, there's like some tutors who teach it, but I would always just pick it up from just interrogating Kevin whenever we're in the car. Like, how do you say that? How do you say that? How do you say that? Yeah. That's a good way to learn. You have a built-in conversation partner there, right? Yeah. And just overhearing it all the time and stuff. So once you did some fundraising across investors, you know, generally all over the world, how did the Hope Center develop? So we were doing the free weekly English classes for about six months. And then we really kicked off the fundraising for the for construction of the center itself. And um, once we raised that money, we were able to construct it over a period of six or eight months, um, which ended up being a bit more expensive than we originally thought because lo and behold, the reason that the land was so cheap was because it was on what some might call a swamp. It wasn't actually a swamp, but it was like very wet land. So that made like the leveling process for the land a lot more expensive. Then after we had the center built, this is kind of finally where we're a lot more a lot closer to being self-sustaining because we're not paying rent. We have our own space and we have the liberty to do with that space whatever we need to. So some of that looks like producing our own sanitary pads and selling them uh, to women in the community. Some of them looks like the loan programs we do where women pay back the loans with a little bit of interest. Um, but those programs are really small. And what we're really looking at expanding into now is having a 
small cafe on our land because we've got we we're kind of on the edge of town and we have a really nice view and a really great piece of land. We have an amazing staff. We have great Wi-Fi, and we have like the perfect setting to build a little cafe for like a social business, like socially responsible place where people can come have a cup of coffee and work on the Wi-Fi. So that's kind of this year's project is setting that up and really working towards making sure that the Hope Center is its own little ecosystem where it doesn't rely on too much funding from the West, shall we say. And how long has, have you been working on it in total now? So we founded the organization in summer 2015. So now it's been three and a half years, but we didn't start running our programs until January 2016. Wow. So in three short years, pretty much you've been able to put together quite a few things there. It must feel great. Yeah, thank you. It's it's really exciting. And I think it was made a lot more exciting when um, when the last time I went out there, we had the grand opening ceremony for the center. And that was kind of when we really saw all of our hard work and how it had come into finally this, like the space we had imagined from the start, you know, like when we first imagined the Hope Center, we imagined a building. And of course, that doesn't come right away. To have that there right now is kind of super reassuring, um, just to know that whatever happens, we now have our space. Yeah, absolutely. And during the time that you were traveling there, where, where were you making your full-time home? Um, in Uganda, we were always based in Gulu. Um, we always stay with Kevin in her house. We, I've traveled a bit to other parts of Uganda. I've been to Jinja a couple of times, been to Murchison Falls, which is Safari Park, and spent a bit of time in Kampala, but not a lot. But Gulu is always our home, definitely where I feel most comfortable, where I know my way around. And so while you may have been kind of staying there for 90 days at a time, where were you keeping your main base full time? Um, it's kind of always been changing and that's something that's made Gulu even more special to me as this time has gone on is it's, it's been the constant, you know, it's just like when I was a kid growing up, we moved around a ton in the U.S., but England was always the constant. So it almost made England feel a little bit closer, a little bit more like home. And recently it's kind of been the same with Gulu. Like I've been traveling and living in a lot of different parts of Europe and recent and the U.S., but Gulu is always the constant. It's always the place I go back to that feels like home, where I see the same family every time. Yeah, that's amazing. It's it's good to feel that, and especially in a place where you're able to implement some some change and help people, and just see the as you mentioned the product of of your hard work in terms of seeing the Hope Center put together. So it must be super exciting. Yeah, it really is. So yeah, I heard uh, at the beginning of the program that you'd spent about six months in Switzerland. Could you talk a little bit about why you decided to go there and what that experience was like for you? Yeah, definitely. So I went to Switzerland um, like the fall after I finished university. So I finished university. I went to Uganda for three months. I traveled a bit and then I knew I wanted to work a ski season. I knew I wanted to do it somewhere French speaking. And I also was pretty sure I didn't want to do it in France. So that kind of left me with the French French Swiss Alps in Switzerland um, and it ended up being like a perfect decision the wages are really good the quality of life is really good you get to go skiing all the time and that's actually where I got to have the most practice DJing um, I DJed in the US but it was always with my friend we were a duo and it was always kind of mainstream hip-hop 
pop and R&B and but I'd always like really liked European house and techno so being in Switzerland I got to play more of what I wanted and kind of experiment and I was just I was DJing a lot more so I got a lot more practice and it also allowed me to save some money so that when I moved to Berlin after the ski season it was a much less stressful move and also Switzerland was really good for fundraising for Hope Center and I still go back there and do fundraisers I think People that people in the mountains, like people working at the ski resort, they're all really good people. I feel like it draws a specific type of person, and everybody there is really, really a good humans. But there's not very volunteer, not very many volunteer opportunities or ways for them to give back. So I think that that's one of the reasons why doing fundraisers out there is so helpful, is because people out there are really excited to give back for something. And they also have more of the wages and, I don't know, ability to do so than necessarily people in Berlin or definitely young people in Berlin. Yeah, well, it sounds like that was a great place for you because it allowed you to exercise all of your interests, get some practice in a number of different things and even fundraise, like you mentioned. So it really hit on uh, and, of course, have some fun. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Sounds like a great spot. Did you find the difference in wages and cost of living to be surprising or challenging? Yeah, definitely going as a tourist would be, I mean, I think it would be like impossible. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not impossible, but the cost of living is super high, especially in the ski resort, everything's super expensive, but the wages were really good and it made it totally kind of normal. Like maybe in Berlin, you get paid 10 euro an hour and you go out to dinner and it's 10 euros, but in Switzerland, you get paid 20 to 25 euro or yeah, 20 euro an hour. And then you go out to dinner and it's 20 euro. It seems really expensive, but if you're getting the wages to match that, it kind of makes more sense. And yeah, as you mentioned, saving up money is definitely good when your <laughs> hourly wages are much higher as, and you try to go to other places around Europe or around the world that are cheaper, right? Yeah, definitely. And I saved money on a lot of things like food because I was working in restaurants or working in chalets and you know, there was always extras or leftovers or staff meal. So there's definitely ways to make it work if you're living there, but I imagine that going there just to visit would be really tough. And even now when I go back to visit, I, I always stay with friends, but I almost always get a couple of DJ gigs to help cover the cost of just existing. So how did it end up that you decided to move to Berlin? Uh, so I had been to Berlin in the summer before I went to Switzerland. It was actually like right after I graduated. Um, I was in Europe visiting friends in different places and Berlin was actually the only place I was going where I didn't, I wasn't really visiting anyone. I just really wanted to go. Um, I had heard great things about it. Even since I was in Buenos Aires, people would be like, oh, if you love Buenos Aires, you have to go to Berlin. You know, it's the same, like same street art, same music culture, but Berlin is safe. And I was like, no way. I can't imagine. That sounds so great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I went to Berlin and I was here for a week and I absolutely loved it. I almost like, I was, you know, I really felt like I wanted to change all my other plans and just stay in Berlin. I was like, I don't want to go to Uganda. I don't want to go to Switzerland or wherever. I didn't even know then that it would be Switzerland. I was like, I don't need to do a ski season. Like I just need to live in Berlin. You know, eventually I was like, okay, no, Berlin will always be here. Like I want to do my other stuff first. It was always kind of the plan to come to Berlin um, after, the, after the ski season or after I had, you know, got the travel 
a broad kind of bugs out of my system. And originally I thought I might just be coming to Berlin for like a summer internship. I didn't really have high expectations for finding a job here, even though I knew that the niche that I wanted to be in was here because I knew there was a lot of startups here. And then I also knew that the two big music tech industry leaders, I guess, are based here, Ableton and Native Instruments. So I was kind of like somewhere between startups and Ableton and Native Instruments, there should be a job for me because I really, I've worked in a few different aspects of the music industry, but working in music tech was my favorite. Um, And then also the music scene here and the culture as well. Like I just got the vibe from when I visited. I was like, visiting Berlin isn't enough. Um, I feel like I want to live here. Like I want to absorb what it's about. Like you can't tell from a week. Like you can see from like the amount you can tell from a week is that you need longer than a week. You need like a year. (laughs) Wow. I had the exact same experience and I've probably said it in another episode before, but I thought I, I looked, you know, I eventually looked back at my itinerary and saw that I'd only been to Berlin on my long Europe trip for three days, but it felt like I remembered it being five days. Like it was just one of those things that somehow I was like, how did I see all that stuff and just get a taste of it in such a short period of time? And I definitely knew soon after arriving that I needed to explore deeper and further and longer than I would be able to as a tourist. So I totally understand your point of view on that. Yeah, exactly. I think that's probably a good sign that someone is <laughs> is a good fit for Berlin because it's probably one of those either you love it or you hate it type cities, I think. Yeah, definitely. Like my sister came to visit and she like, I mean, she thought it was cool, but she was like, I don't want to live here. (laughs) Right. So you obviously have a good niche that fit the market here in Berlin, but how did you go about actually finding your job? Uh, It was actually kind of funny. I was like applying for, I started applying for jobs before I left Switzerland and I was kind of making a lot of like coffee dates and trying to figure out, you know, who I knew in my network or my university's network who could maybe help me get a job. When I first got here, I had like a couple of meetings like that, but none of them actually turned into anything. It was actually like a job I applied for within the first week of moving here. It was just one that I found online and I didn't know. um, I didn't know anyone working there. It was just kind of a random application. And that was the one that ended up turning into something. Um, it was, they were looking for a digital marketing manager and I applied and I was basically like, I, I don't think I'm really qualified to be a manager, but I'm super hardworking and I'm really open and what you guys are doing are really, is really cool. And they called me like the next day and offered me kind of like an introductory position. And then I ended up moving up from there to a manager position within a few months. But, um, yeah, it was funny. It worked out really well. So just in general, do you have any advice for others looking to work in Africa or start uh, their own NGO there and just get involved with the scene in Uganda in particular? Uh, In Uganda in particular, I definitely recommend people to go there Um, in the first place. Just go. It's amazing. There's so much going on. It's like one of the youngest countries in the world, one of the most entrepreneurial countries in the world. And um, there is a lot of arts and music seen developing there right now uh, a lot of it is based in Kampala but you know Gulu as well um, there's a festival every September called Yege Yege Festival which is like experimental and African and electronic music combined and they do a really good job of um, highlighting local artists from around East Africa 
And uh, as far as working for NGOs out there goes, I definitely recommend that people do their research and that people, um, I generally recommend working with smaller organizations rather than trying to find something through one of the bigger international NGOs. I think that a grass, like once you're on the ground with a grassroots organization, you'll really see how much more valuable that can be in terms of the impact that they're having and in terms of the ways that they would like utilize you as a volunteer. Definitely, yeah, research, you got to be careful. But it's also, I mean, this is true with anything, but I think it's really good to go to a place um, but and then maybe see from there. Uh, there's definitely, you know, grassroots organizations that you can find online that are reputable, but also when you go somewhere, you can see their work on the ground. You can see how maybe they're using other volunteers and then you can decide where you want to work. Is there anything else in general that you'd like to tell our listeners about your experience or about working and living abroad? Yeah, I would just say go for it. Um, it's always good to put yourself outside of your comfort zone and like see how you respond. Um, I'd also just say that Gulu is a very safe place to work. It has a really bad history, but I think because of that, people have such a mentality for a brighter future and people are super welcoming and friendly. And I think the ultimate thing that they want is for you to have a good time and go home and tell tell your friends and family that you love Gulu. Like they want you to genuinely have a good time. There have been times that, you know, at the bars there, I've left my phone on the bar and, you know, come back, whatever, 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, and the bartender has grabbed it for me, or it's even just still sitting there perfectly. Or, you know, the DJ will stop the music and make an announcement like, hello, like somebody's phone has been turned in. Like, People are really looking out for each other. They're really looking out for you. Um, stealing is just not really a part of the culture, um, the Acholi culture. That's like the prominent tribe in northern Uganda. In the capital in Kampala, there's instances of pickpocketing. You have to be really careful like at stoplights, keeping your windows rolled up and stuff like that. But in Gulu, it's, stealing is just not a part of the culture. And people, it's a very community-centered vibe. And people are really excited to have you there as part of the community. Excellent. How can our listeners find out more about what you're up to as well as uh, recent improvements and updates on the Hope Center? Probably the best way would be to follow the Hope Center on uh, Facebook or Instagram. Uh, the handle for that is Hope Center Gulu. Center spelled the American way, C-E-N-T-E-R. Um, and then also our website, hopegulu.org. And that's updated regularly with blog posts and with any kind of new projects that we're working on. Um, there's also contact information on there and information about volunteering and internships if people are interested in coming to Gulu and helping us in person or even doing like fundraisers, um, projects like that with us from abroad. Cool. Well, it sounds like an amazing opportunity for our listeners. I'll be sure to link that in the show notes and certainly very much appreciate all your insights and the great story of all the experiences you've had around the world. So look forward to seeing how things progress for you. And thanks again so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, best of luck to anyone out there listening who decides that they want to, I don't know, step outside their comfort zone and experience life in another country for a bit. Thanks to Jamie for sharing her story with us. You can find the full transcript from today's episode at expatempire.com. 
Music on this episode was produced by Eli Hermit. Please check him out on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and lets us know that we are putting out content that you appreciate. Keep up to date on new Expat Empire podcast episodes by pressing the subscribe button in the podcasting app of your choice. You can also visit expatempire.com and sign up for the newsletter to get notified about new podcast episodes and receive a ton of free expat and travel-related content. We're also on Facebook at Expat Empire, so be sure to follow us there. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode in the coming weeks.